You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. For the first time this morning, motorists traveling the island highway through Nanus Bay could have seen the billboards for two missing and possibly murdered women from Vancouver Island, Lisa Young and Angeline Pete. A giant billboard with Lisa's picture is now up on the island. Lisa's friends are fighting to keep her memory alive and her case active. They have been pushing for answers for almost two decades. Where is Lisa? Fifteen years gone, and Lisa Marie Young's loved ones continue to ask the same question. Where is Lisa? The 21-year-old brunette vanished on June 30th, 2002, after leaving a party. Lisa's mom, Joanne, organized a march for Lisa every year. Joanne Young never sought out the media spotlight, but that's where she found herself time and again, as she tried to make sure the search for her missing daughter, Lisa Young, never faded from the public eye. On this day, she was feeling positive because the federal government had just announced a national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. It's about time, and... um, I'm really hopeful that Trudeau will follow through. That was Joanne Young's last interview with Czech News. And when Joanne dies, Lisa's family and friends carry on the yearly walks. Under gray Nanaimo skies, 16 years to the day that Lisa Marie Young vanished from this community, her family and friends are gathered to march and find justice for her. Her life stopped in that moment. Her family and friends, they stopped in that moment. And there is increased interest in Lisa's story, as cases of murdered and missing Indigenous women are the subject of a national inquiry. Families of 29 murdered and missing women have traveled to this Port Alberni gymnasium from across the West Coast to share for the record what happened to their mothers, sisters and daughters, and the lasting impact it's having on those left behind. I have to think those responsible for what happened to Lisa are paying attention. Lisa's story isn't fading away. I'm Laura Palmer. This is season one of Island Crime, Where is Lisa? This is episode five, a tipster and an outside investigator. British Columbia, Canada has the highest number of missing adult reports in the country. The vast majority are resolved within a week, but Lisa is still missing. Here is the official word on Lisa Marie Young's disappearance as it appears on the RCMP's national website for Canada's missing persons in 2018. Lisa Marie Young was last seen in the early morning hours of June 30th, 2002. She went to a local bar and met some male acquaintances after the bar closed. She and her acquaintances accepted a ride from another man whom they had just met. Lisa Marie was last seen with the man in the vehicle, heading to get some food. Her friends and family have not heard from her since, which is completely out of character. The billboards and the attention to Lisa's case online are working. People are still surfacing with information. David is one of those people. And a warning, the information David tells me is disturbing. The next recovering addict, I've been cleaning up for 10 years. I've been in prison half my life, completed that parole, I was married, uh, I was a professional prize fighter, I was uh, you know, the gangster again, and, and uh, I was involved with serious people and doing bad stuff, you know, and uh, it, that's, that's, that's all I knew. 
That's all I knew, right? And anyways, uh, I no longer, I have, my last prison sentence was um, 2002. I'm a born-again Christian also. This is all God's doing, I'm telling you. And I haven't been in prison. I don't live that lifestyle. I don't do drugs. I'm a new personality. So it's been haunting me. And this is one that's been haunting me for years. I do want to hear, you know, how you're how you're doing now, because it sounds like you've got a, a a different and maybe more positive life now. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a competitive bodybuilder now. I'm a champion bodybuilder, amateur bodybuilder. I just competed in the, in Mr. Canada. Uh, and Quebec Laval um, last year. I, I, grand, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 60 next year. I was in the uh, 55 Grandmasters, 55 years and over. I mean, that's and I now I, I, I live on a farm. I live with um, family members. I raise goats and dog. I have two dogs, two cats, and that's what I do. I, that's my life. <laughs> so, so you have this new new life, and it sounds like things are going well. What is it you that's weighing on your mind? It's always been weighing on my mind. It's always been weighing on my mind. And I've been, and, and then you know, now I just came out of the Stone Age. I was illiterate, illiterate from the age of twenty six, and I just got on the computer uh, not long ago. My family, you know. Got me on the computer, showed me how to work it, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and you know, the time you see something about uh, in memory of Lisa, uh, people, if you know anything, and I said, yeah, I know. I've been trying to get hold of it, you know, myself, right? So one day, I just like, a year later, too, I said, I said okay, I got to get, I prayed to God. I said, God, if you want me to do this, let's do this. It, this is, it, it has a way, once in a while, I tell you what I, what I know. Yeah. You will understand how this has been haunting me. What is it you know, and how do you know it? I used to hang out with and we were gangsters. We did crimes together and violence together. Okay, so one day, this is how it all. One day it started like this. I'm in the back seat of a car. He was driving, and there was a girl called Amber. This police will know her, and. By my feet, in the back seat, there was two video cassette taping things, just cassette tapes. But and then they were talking, saying about this guy Rob. This guy, and I, you know, at first I said, I'm, I'm not catching this. I, I, I don't. At first I don't understand. I don't even know what's going on. They're saying these tapes are on the floor. Anybody could have picked them up. People, they would have got busted. La la la. I said, oh, Holy fuck, that's pretty stupid. He says, Yeah. He says, I can't believe this guy. Anyways, and Amber said to work to uh, Mike, okay, we'll, we'll deal with this. Okay. And that was the last I'd heard about him. But I didn't know what this tape was in or anything about it, nothing. All right. About two months later, I'm a drug dealer now. This, it happened about Lisa Marie Guam missing, and this girl who, who uh, used to buy drugs for me, I don't remember her name. And her boyfriend's name was Rob. Now, this is how this tape's getting, how, how this comes in contact. This girl comes to me in fear for her life, in fear for her life, telling me about what happened. And she, she said, I said, what are you talking about? What, what, why are you so fearful? What happened? She goes, the, the, I think the is going to kill me. 
because of what went what I know what what's down on my place. That's what happened. They did they had Lisa Marie at her at the, at their house. And you're supposed to be do, did a, a they're supposed to be doing a porno movie, like a snuff movie, but it was like to be a like a bullshit one, not actually a real one, it was like a, a mock one. Went sour. Supposedly went sour. And she got murdered. And then they they, they, just, they took the body and they dropped it into the well. Rob eventually, I, I grabbed Rob and I said, Rob, your, your, your girl's telling me this. What's going on here, buddy? And, you know, he tell, owns up to it. And he's telling me, he's also fearful. He tells me what happened. And that's, he says the same thing that he said. Did did you just say that they said they put Lisa's body down a well? Yes, and they moved her body afterwards because they were fearful that you know, in case one of the you know one of the cops or something. Because there's a few people involved in this, and I, I what gets me is you know I, I how the you know usually you get a lot of people you know people talk you know like you already had this girl already. The links are really starting to, like a weak link, that's saying the weak links. You really have two weak links. And, uh, and I'm surprised how this, this ship is staying afloat and nobody uh, has talking in between them. Like, uh, he's boast. He has boast about this, the people. He truly has. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. He truly has boast. Now, I wouldn't go for, I don't know as far as boasting. He says it. Conscience, like when he's talking to uh, the girl there, right? To me, that's boasting. Because if you kill somebody, you don't want nobody to know your business. You know what I mean? And everybody in the nine world has a you know a good understanding of who or who are the players of this. You know, and if what I have to say, God, I hope it, it, it comes to good for these police and they charge them. I will come to court. I have no fear at all. Over the years, Lisa's parents, Don and Joanne, would get calls from people like David, claiming to have information about Lisa. I can't imagine what it would be like to hear those stories over and over and over again. I'm not in a position to verify what David has told me. There is no second source. But I found David. He didn't seek me out. Some of what he says sounds fantastic but I have been able to confirm elements of his background. He was indeed a bad guy. I checked his criminal record. And he is a champion bodybuilder. I found stories of his wins. Many of the names of people connected with Lisa's disappearance have a background as prize fighters, boxers, and bodybuilders. As I listen to David and try to assess his credibility, I'm reminded of another phone conversation I had many years ago. I interviewed Robert Picton over the phone in the late 1990s, very early in my journalism career. The story was about taxes. Back then, Picton was simply a pig farmer, raising concerns about taxes on agricultural land. This was a few years before his arrest, at a time when he was in the midst of his serial killing spree. Picton would go on to be known as Canada's very worst serial killer. After his arrest, I found the contact information I had put into our database. I'd simply noted that Picton was a good talker. That's media slang for someone who can successfully string a few words together if you put a mic in front of them. I think of that conversation as I speak with people about Lisa Marie's disappearance. 
I'd like to think my judgment is better than it was back then, honed over more than 25 years and thousands of interviews. And yet, Lisa's story is tricky terrain. It's an open investigation. Lisa is still missing. A number of people I've spoken to on and off the record express fear. I'm doing my best to present information that is truthful, but I'm wary of being played. In the last episode, we talked about how time really is not on our side in this case. Dallas Hulley, Lisa's friend and one of the last people to see her alive, is now dead. Run over at the side of the road. Lisa's mom, Joanne, a woman who carried on her own investigation and campaign for justice, has passed as well. Just after I interviewed David, I learned from him that one of the characters he talked about, one of the brothers linked to Lisa's disappearance, has now died too. And so I'm anxious for answers now. I'm eager to speak with someone who can bring an investigative perspective to Lisa's case. I reach out to local private detectives. One agrees to act as an informal soundboard for my questions for background only, and I take him up on this offer. And I seek out others with relevant experience. Recalling my interview with Robert Picton reminds me that a leading authority on missing women investigations is right here on my doorstep. Laura Merchener wrote a book about his experience on the Picton case. It's called Lonely Section of Hell, the botched investigation of a serial killer who almost got away. No longer a police officer, he agrees to speak with me about Lisa Marie's case from his home in Vancouver. And an apology, the quality of this audio isn't great. My name is Laura Merchener. I'm a retired 27-year Vancouver police officer. I was a detective for 21 of those years. Uh, And my biggest, I guess, detective duties were around Vancouver's missing women. And yeah, I worked on that case. Um, My first week, I I got a tip on Robert Picton, who ended up being convicted of of murdering six of our women. And I suppose really, um, through that work, I, I think I became very painfully aware of the inadequacies of a lot of police investigations around missing missing people and specifically missing women and more specifically missing marginalized women because I started to see that they definitely received a different level of service and I I think part of it was not so much because they were um, just dismissed out of hand but that there were a lot of stereotypes that investigators held about people living in those kinds of circumstances, and those stereotypes really got in the way of a, of a robust investigation. I briefly described the facts of the case and asked Lorimer to place himself back in that time as he considers what happens next. I begin by asking if the police behavior after Lisa's parents first reported her missing seems normal. But it, it wasn't, it wasn't, because I would I would submit that if it, if it were a middle-class white girl, uh, there would have been a lot more concern. And only because those detectives would have been informed the thoughts that that was unusual for her. Whereas with a, with a young Indigenous woman as their victim, or you know, the missing person, in their minds, they're thinking, oh, you know, maybe she's a drug user, maybe she's a drinker. We already know the circumstances. She was out 
you know, she's out partying or, or you know, sort of in social situations. And they would make all these little finely tuned decisions about who she was and about her life that they would not even be conscious of. They would make them say, yeah, we can wait four days before we jump on this. And they wouldn't do that, I would submit, with a white, young white woman. It's almost, it's normal, but it's not normal. It's nor, it's not, it shouldn't be the way that they're handled, but often I think it's the normal progression of, of this victim stereotyping that you see happening. And so they, you know, they're sort of almost like lower priority missing person cases because they think there are aspects of that person's life that makes their disappearance a little less valid, makes them think that they're not, you know, quote unquote, really missing, which I heard a million times in my investigation. Well, is she really missing? You know, because there'd be, again, these stereotypes, these, these stereotypical ideas that, you know, say women in the downtown east side or, or, or indigenous women who maybe like to go out with their friends a lot and maybe have a few drinks, but somehow they don't want to found just some kind of a little bit a little bender that he's gonna return from. And and that often, you know, leads to pretty bad consequences. Joanne, that's Lisa's mom, was, you know, so worried that people would that the police specifically would not pay as much attention or worse, or assume that uh Lisa Marie was a prostitute, that really she tried to downplay Lisa Marie's Indigenous background. I just, I can't imagine a mom having to think about that when she's talking to police. No, it's absolutely, that would be absolutely common practice among Indigenous mothers reporting their daughters. I've heard it time and time and time and time again. Uh, when talking with them, uh, they know full well, and it's not just, I mean, it's a little bit anecdotal among them when they're talking to each other, but it's uh, they know full well. You know, it's it's the same way. You know, when black people are talking about how to interact with the police, if they get stopped by the police, and it's just this is what you need to do to be safe. And I think for the, for Indigenous moms, this is what they need to do in order for their hopefully to get their daughters' cases taken a little bit more seriously. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true, and it's it's horrifying when you um, you know. I think the the National Inquiry is a good example. Like when you look at some of the details of those stories, this, this theme comes up time and time and time again. The story kind of hits the papers, I'm going to say about four or five days after. And in the, the first story, the police are quoted as saying, you know, they have no reason to suspect foul play. What would make police suspect something had gone wrong? I'm just, I found it a curious thing to read in that first report. And so, so like, what would they have had to have heard to make them think something had gone wrong? Well, you know, I can't speak for them no. because I, I can't put myself in that mindset, but to me hearing that, to them to say that, it seems ridiculous because to me, the only thing I would need to hear as that investigator is that, is that she was last spoken to in a car with somebody holding her against her will. And, and the fact that we haven't found him, and those were her last, you know, interactions with someone who knew her. To me, that's more than enough. I've always worked on the assumption that you you rule things out before before you do nothing. You have to rule you have to rule out whether you know it's easy, super easy if, if you investigate it hard and you go at it hard and 
sure enough, she's fine, but she's hiding out with her boyfriend somewhere and didn't want to be found. Great. Best case scenario, everybody's happy, she's safe. But short of that, you, you have to you have to assume this is serious. And I think when someone's holding, you've got her telling a friend that, that she's in a car, not being allowed to leave, to me, that just screams to circumstances in in combination with the fact that she's missing. You know, um, that those are, I, I don't know what those police would have needed to think it was suspicious, but I personally would not have felt that you need anything more than that. As I begin listening back to my conversation, I think about those early days of the police investigation, and I wonder. When did Dallas Hulley tell the police about the calls he had from Lisa Marie? Sure enough, it's Lisa on her cell phone. I call her back. She goes, Dallas, uh, I don't know what's going on. This guy won't bring me back. We're sitting in a driveway on Bowen Road, and he won't bring me back. We're just sitting here. She's like, I'm bored. I'm getting pissed off. Surely, had they have known that next day that she'd called Dallas and said she was uncomfortable and not being let go from the Red Jag, that would have been enough to make them suspect foul play. You know, now if somebody is missing, you, you know, pops up on Facebook and Twitter and what have you. But back then, like how quickly would the media have been involved? If it was a concern for police, would they involve the media straight away back then? No. No. The only time the police would involve uh, the media is if it were what they would consider to be a high-profile um, file, um, you know, a young child, or uh, you know, maybe, maybe an elderly person, someone who they determined that their own estimation was someone vulnerable, you know, quote-unquote vulnerable, and they wouldn't the definition of vulnerability has, has changed a great deal since that time. So Lisa's body has never been found, and so she's officially still listed as missing. But no one I've talked to believes she's alive. And in fact, it's quite a peculiar circumstance, well, to my mind, in that it so many people I talk to in the community Uh, feel quite confident they know exactly what happened. What do you make of the fact that her body was never found? How how unusual is that? Well, it's quite unusual. Um, It's uh, it's not an easy thing to dispose of a body without without it being found. It's really not. And so... You know, it always makes me think that you've either got somebody who's who's got the luxury of some time to deal with that body, or who's got privacy and space to, you know, in the, in the example of Picton you know, on his own property, he could, you know, he could do everything he needed to do to dispose of his bodies because um, he had a lot of a lot of property in it and it was private. It's quite unusual, and you know, invariably over time, something usually turns up. Proximity to water makes it a little tougher um, because it is a little bit easier, you know, when you live when you live somewhere near the ocean or, or near a, a you know large body of water. You know, there's some other ways you can deal with that. Unfortunately, over time, you know, with decomposition and and you know, critters in the water and things like that, it, it does make it really tough. Part of it is that they kind of have to know what you obviously. You know, that was one of the things that we had to do in our investigation: rule out where the women weren't. Um, because we really you know, weren't having a lot of luck figuring out where they were. It's pretty ominous and pretty suspicious. I mean, this was for that long, and there's no contact. Lisa's mom, Joanne, 
few weeks after Lisa has gone missing, is asked to come to Parksville to a lockup there where they have the guy who was last seen with her. And she's asked to bring, you know, pictures of Lisa Marie, some of her belongings. Is is that yeah. like how common is that is that as an as an approach? Well, you would eventually use that approach um, in trying to, you would sort of coordinate that with an effort to try to give the suspect um, kind of a, a face-saving way to admit what he did. So you could sort of say, you know, you really didn't mean to kill her, did you? You just, you know, this was just, you know, this is rough sex that went wrong, or this was, you know, you just, you hit her, but you weren't trying to kill her, and she just hit her head. Isn't that what happened? You know, you you try to sort of give them these slightly less, you know, offensive alternatives to that they can say, yeah, actually, that was just that's all. And then, and and so that it, it's just a way in, basically. Again, you know, if just playing armchair quarterback, it makes me think they don't really understand the minds, uh, and nor do I, but, but enough to know that nobody understands the minds of these guys that do this. And unless, you know, he was somebody who was friends with her or had some sort of intimate connection with her, you know, the likelihood of, you know, playing on his sympathy, I think it's pretty slim. And so it seems, it's obvious if they weren't able to charge him that that was all they had. And I, I think it's a bit of a Hail Mary and if you do it, it's sort of, you certainly tip off to the suspect that you've got nothing else. You know, you've got no other evidence. And then he just walks out and gives the case to you. And again, I, I know this is um, not your investigation and you're looking at this down the years as well. One of the things that certainly is raised by family and friends is that he was a member of a prominent local family. And, you know, he was driving a red jag and like really kind of stood out in the community as somebody well-connected. Like, right. so like really like how, how much would that be taken into consideration? Probably a lot. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if it walks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And I honestly, I think, but this kind of thing happens all the time where, you know, and again, I, I really go back to the idea of stereotypes because if this guy then falls into a type in their mind, you know, good family, you know, good because, you know, they equate good family with, with a family with money. So they think, oh, yeah, okay, this is a guy with a good family. You know, he's a, you know, whatever, the, you know, a child of prominent people and, uh, you know, you know, he doesn't fit their idea of a killer, probably. So these all play into the, the approach that the police take. And so, like I said, in, in all of this, I think in the investigators' minds, they all think they're doing the right thing and doing a great job. But again, it's all based in these almost like templates, if you will, you know, kind of a stereotype of each player in this little play. And when they have those stereotypes, then it, it's going to fall a very stereotypical path. Many of these investigators walks into this thinking, okay, I'm gonna be biased today. I'm gonna to be I'm gonna be racist today. I'm gonna to be, you know, I'm gonna be classist today. They don't they don't think it's not like that. But what happens is they're so as all of us are, 
they have all these biases they carry, and we all do. And if you're not even aware that you have them, you're not going to be able to question them or be able to step outside of them for a second and say, am I really looking at this investigation bearing in mind all the biases I have? The problem isn't having the biases. It, the problem is when you can't acknowledge that you carry them and then look beyond them. Well, that particular interaction um, with between the police and uh, Lisa Marie's mom, Joanne, uh, also, there's a moment where she was asked to hug this guy. You what? Know? Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. Again, I can't imagine a universe in which they would make, you know, a Caucasian mother of a Caucasian victim do that. I can't imagine. And they wouldn't think about it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even probably be able to articulate, well, why did you do it with this person, but, but you, you know, not with this person? That's, Unfortunately, unsurprising to me that you that you tell me that happened, but that it's still horrifying. At any rate, no charges were ever laid. And then, you know, there's a suggestion that there were others involved at these other parties, and that's where you kind of get into um, speculation because, yeah. you know, yeah. none of that anyone uh, has ever had firsthand knowledge of. Right comment on something about yeah, that yeah. if it's okay because that's really interesting to me too because I think that really speaks to um, an inadequacy in the RCMP in their investigation strategies because the same thing happened with Picton uh, it was quite clear pretty early on um, uh, you know, after he was arrested and, and uh, you, know, uh, you know we had wiretap up and lots of lots of stuff was coming out about his involvement, and it was, I mean, I had always suspected there were others involved in that, too. And I think the RCMP felt like that was possible as well, and then they started to um, see some indications of that as, as the case was kind of developing. But there was a point where they, they made a choice, and I don't know if it was a conscious choice or not, but they decided they were going to just focus on Picton and that they were going to try to uh, bring all these potential co-accused, try to bring them on side as witnesses against Picton. But in doing that, they kind of, they threatened them all um, with being charged potentially as, as co-accused if they didn't cooperate. They said, you know, basically you need to testify, tell us everything you know about Picton or we're going to charge you too. And, Almost universally, they all just said to the RCMP, screw you guys, I'm not saying anything, and I go ahead and charge me, you don't have anything on me. Because they knew, they knew they had nothing. They all called their bluff. And so ultimately, when the trial came, half of those people didn't even get called to testify in any way, and they didn't get charged with, with being accessories or being co-accused. And I don't believe the RCMP actually even had the resources to, to investigate the conspiracy part of that case that I believe actually exists. And so you have to wonder if this isn't the same where they just decided to focus on, you know, they get this tunnel vision on one guy and they don't really pay a lot of attention to maybe some of the indicators that there are others involved or even, maybe even real people telling them, look, there's other people involved here. It's too complicated for them to be able to um, manage. So they just don't 
they just they just said, no, we're just going to go with this guy. And then, oh, if that guy's not your guy, then they have nothing. I think it's not so much they want to blow off a case. I think they actually sometimes just don't know what to do. The people who believe they know what happened, you know, all seem to say the same thing, which is, you know, there's a party and there's some very bad people at that party, guys who have lengthy criminal records, two particular brothers. A part of me just wants to believe it's simply that there was never a body found and that it's just been impossible to charge anybody without the body. But I don't know. Because that was 2002, right? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, even 99, 2000, um, one of the VPD homicide detectives was actually able to get a conviction uh, on a gang in a gang case where, uh, where they never had a body and, um, hmm. just through DNA, just through DNA. Right. And it was starting to become possible then this whole notion that, that I had bumped up against a lot, you know, basically no, no body, no crime was starting to change. It was starting to slowly change. Speaking with the families and the friends, they are all so reluctant to openly criticize the police if you're not satisfied with an investigation, what do you do? And this has always been my frustration. Is that there's no policy that says do your damn job or, or apply you know, the same rigor to your job for everybody. Virtually every person I've talked to in Nanaimo, they all say yeah. the same story and they all believe it. That is so familiar. I have to tell you, so okay, my book came out in 2015. And so I've been toured with it. I, you know, I still speak quite a bit about it. And almost everywhere I've spoken about it publicly, someone's always come up to me and has had some connection with Brooklyn or some connection with that farm. And they've said, you know, I knew somebody used to live there I used to live there. I grew up there. And they've all had some little tidbit to tell me that helps to confirm some of theories around some of the things that were going on out there that never saw the light of day. And, and I suspect, I mean, your case sounds exactly like it. Laura Merchener is right. There are people on the island who know something. It just takes one of them to come forward and do the right thing. I think about Lisa's father, Don. He's in his 60s, caring for an adult son, his arthritis making it uncomfortable for him to walk, hoping to retire, considering a move. I think about Lisa's grandparents, they have all waited too long for answers. Ahead in episode six, the former white-collar crime fighter who has taken a special interest in Lisa's case. I know who the killers are. I know who was involved. And numerous, numerous people, many others in Nanaimo, know who's involved and, and, and who took Lisa from them, yet nothing has happened and and you know to a normal citizen you kind of think well of course you know you can't get away with murder but you can get away and people do get away with murder and in this case they are getting away with murder i'm laura palmer and this is island crime season one where is lisa